to be back today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you again for the grace and mercy. We thank you that your faithfulness is great. It is greater than we can measure. It is greater than we can compare. It is infinite, as is your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we are sinners, Christ has died for us. Even though we are sinners, you have revealed yourself in your word. And you give us opportunity now to come to your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will help me to speak your words correctly. And that your people will hear your voice and be edified and convicted of sin and built up in Christ. I pray your name would be great today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter chapter 20. We're going to continue walking through what is often called Passion Week, the week of the crucifixion and then the resurrection, as it turned out, of Christ. And when we were last in Luke together, we saw Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. That happened on Monday of this final week. He was hailed as the king who comes in the name of the Lord by massive crowds. Some of the Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke those crowds. But he said, if they are silent, even the stones will cry out. And if you recall, that wasn't to say that the stones would actually sing praise songs to God. That was a, a, a forecast of judgment that would eventually come. In A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. We then saw the next day, Tuesday, Jesus drove out those who were selling. He turned over the, the tables of the money changers who had they'd set up shop there in the temple. And it was this really an extortion racket that the, the priests were in on. And Jesus drove them out. He says, you've turned my father's house into a house, a, a robber's den. And then we see that uh, he was teaching daily in the temple, according to Luke 19.47. But the, the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word he said. So, because the crowds list, were listening to Jesus' teaching because of that, the people who wanted to kill him, they couldn't just grab him and do it, if they did that, they would provoke a riot and they might end up dead themselves. So they were listening to Jesus' words then. They were hoping that they could catch Jesus in something that they could then use to destroy Him. And once again, my notes are being fickle with me for like the second or third week in a row when I'm doing this. So, there we go. I know, I... I gotta go back to paper notes at this rate. So so the setting is the temple. And it's Wednesday. We're two days away from the crucifixion. And what's gonna happen is they are looking to trap Jesus with his words, and that's what this passage shows us. The first eight verses of chapter twenty. So let's read it, and then let's see if my notes work. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple. And preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. 
And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And uh, we've read this passage, and hopefully it's not the first time you've read it, but I'm willing to bet that when you think about the Scriptures as it relates to the final week of Jesus, this is probably not one that comes to mind. This is probably not one of those passages that sticks in your brain when you think about that week um, uh, between when He comes into Jerusalem and, and when He's resurrected. But nothing in the Bible doesn't matter. And there, there's no verse or word of God's Word that is incidental. And the confrontation in these verses centers on authority. And really when we think through this, it cuts to the heart of why these people wanted Jesus dead. Because as sinners, by nature, every single one of us as a sinner is bent toward rejecting the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. As sinners, we are bent to our own authority. We want to be our own sovereigns. That's the the choice Adam made in the garden. Of course, he was deceived. Eve was deceived. They were deceived. But they made that choice to sin, and, and so often we do too because we are descendants of Adam. And in our natural state, we follow those rebellious footsteps. But Jesus does have supreme and unequivocal authority over all things. We see in the Scriptures that all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. In fact, that's the basis for the Great Commission. We see that. that Jesus says that in Matthew 28. All things have been placed under His control. Jesus is the second person of the eternal Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He's God in and of Himself. So He possesses authority in and of Himself. And at the end of chapter 19, he exhibits his authority over the house of God, uh, the temple. He drives out those who are doing the selling and instead takes their place by teaching the people. And so now it's Wednesday. Uh, Passion, by the way, we hear it called Passion Week. That means suffering. So this is the week of his suffering. And he's teaching. What was he teaching? We see that in verse 1. He was preaching the gospel. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, which means that he was no doubt doing what what we need to be doing. He was calling people to repent. He was calling people to believe. He was calling people to entrust themselves to him. Jesus probably talked about many of the different themes he he spoke about during his three plus years of earthly ministry. He, He no doubt spoke about sin. He He no doubt would have said some things about hypocrisy and about superficial religion. He would have no doubt talked about how these things are a stench in the nostrils of God. He no doubt would have spoken about how hopeless it is 
for people to try to obtain the righteousness of God on their own efforts, on one's own attempts at holiness. He probably would have spoken about prayer because he says a lot about prayer in the Gospels, uh, which we have seen. And, And there could be little doubt also that he would have spoken and warned about the judgment to come. The eternal hell for those who do not know God. The the eternal hell for those who do not belong to Him. And He would have reinforced the truth that we all need to hear. That God has loved the world in such a way that He sent His own Son into the world to be the propitiation, to be the wrath absorber for the sins of all those He will ever save, that they might not perish but have everlasting life. He's preaching the gospel. Jesus is is teaching all of this. And those who had been benefiting from the selling were watching the the chief priest and all them. And the ones who were in charge of the temple were watching. And here, here we have the gatekeepers of the Jewish religion watching Jesus take the place in the temple. So the first thing we see here is a showdown. There's a showdown that takes place here. The Jewish authorities could not stand idly by and allow Jesus to cast them aside and, and threaten their power, to threaten their way of life, to, 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 to be a threat to their control over the religious system, and to a degree the political life too. So in verse 1 we see that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted Him. So we have three groups of people mentioned here. The chief priests. That would have included Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas should be a familiar name to you. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time of the crucifixion this week. So he's the current high priest. You also have Annas. Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. He was the former high priest, but but kind of like how we, we still call former presidents by the title of president, he was still high priest in many eyes, and he was a very influential figure. You also, among these chief priests, would have had the captain of the temple and other high-ranking priests considered the chief priest. You have the scribes. The scribes are referred to many times in the Gospels. They are the theologians. They were mostly Pharisees, and they were the ones who interpreted the law. They were the ones who, who taught the law. They interpreted what Moses wrote. They interpreted... The, the rabbinical traditions that had been handed down and, and established over several hundred years now. And so you got the scribes. And then you have the elders who are the other leading men. And so the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders make up what is called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is a group of about 70 men who made up the, the Jewish, the religious governing council in Israel. They were the religious authority, whereas the Roman Empire was the political authority. They were were like Congress. You you have different viewpoints within the Sanhedrin. You have people who disagree with one another within this, this religious governing council. But there was one thing that they could all agree on, whether they were Pharisees or Sadducees or something else. And that was, we need to get rid of Jesus. We need to get rid of Jesus. So they confronted Him. They come at Him with with hostile intent. And 
Again, they couldn't just seize him because the crowd, if they confronted him openly and seized him, the crowd would probably riot. So instead, in the temple courtyard, they want to publicly discredit him. They want to to minimize his influence. They want to ruin his influence with the people so that they can then do away with him with approval. They they knew in, in the past that Jesus had claimed authority to do what he did and to say what he said from God. He, he had claimed, for instance, in Luke 5, that he had the authority to forgive sins. That's something only God can do. And they expected him to claim that authority from God again. And when he did, then they would be able to accuse him of blasphemy. And if they could accuse him of blasphemy, then they could then call for his death. So, they confronted and they spoke saying to him, it says, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? In other words, by what source do you not only have the ability, but do you claim the right to do these things that you're doing? And these things, by the way, it could just refer to what he had done in the temple the day before. It could refer to, to, to everything he'd done in Jerusalem from Monday on. But, but these things in question are, are his teachings and everything that has happened since he's coming to Jerusalem. Casting out the sellers, turning over the tables, and now assuming a place as teacher in the temple. So what gave Jesus the right? Where did his authority come from? Now they had asked a similar question in, in John 2. And John 2 is the first place we see uh, Jesus turn over the tables. And then he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he, he does a, a different approach here. The, the second part of this showdown is Jesus' counter question. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, it might appear at first glance that Jesus was dodging their question. Um, and, and from a human perspective, we can see that. After all, he had been asked questions before. And he had given direct answers a lot of times before, including times they didn't want to hear direct answers. Uh, Jesus did not duck telling people who he really was. He had called himself the Son of God. He had referred to himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic term. He had referred to God as his Father. He has told Jewish leaders, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus was not in the business of ducking questions. Well, because that was a common way to do things for rabbis, here he answers a question with a question. Because in rabbinical practice, that would be a common way of, of, of doing things because then it forces the one who asked the first question to consider the matter a little more deeply, to, to, to look at themselves and really consider the question. So, so he's trying to get these chief priests and scribes and elders, why don't you think about where my authority comes from? He asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? 
Was what John did from God, or was it something that John did on his own? Now, that's a loaded question. Because we don't really grasp, I don't think, here today in 2019, I don't think we really grasp how big a deal John the Baptist was. I think we generally have a lack of appreciation for how significant his ministry was, because really we don't get a lot of it in Scripture. We get a lot more about other people than we do John the Baptist. But, but I always go back to what Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, that there's no one who's been born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. That in and of itself should tell us we ought to look more closely at what he said and what he did, what was said about him. Um, because his ministry is more significant than we usually give him credit for. Um, consider that Herod Antipas was very concerned about those aligning with John starting an uprising that would get him out of power. And that would have to be quite a, quite a bit of people to do that. Uh, Herod actually eventually had him beheaded. Uh, years after Jesus ascended into heaven, maybe 20 years, Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And what does he find in Ephesus? He finds that the reputation of John the Baptist in Ephesus is more significant than the reputation of Jesus in Ephesus. You've got people in Ephesus who have been baptized with John's baptism who did not even know who Jesus was. So John the Baptist's name had reached far beyond the borders of what we know as Israel. It had gone into Asia Minor even before the name of Jesus had, which is significant. Paul had to tell the people there in Acts 19 that John the Baptist was telling you about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who you need to be baptized in. And and you might have heard me mention the name of Josephus before. Josephus was a, 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 a historian in the first century. And in in the first century, he writes more and he writes in more detail about the ministry of John the Baptist than he does that of Jesus. So, in other words, on Wednesday before Jesus was crucified, the memory and the shadow of John the Baptist hangs heavy over the temple and over Jesus' showdown with the Sanhedrin. And he knows exactly how to needle them. Jesus doesn't appeal to the, the traditions of the rabbis, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They've long since abandoned the authority of God for an authority made in their own image. But, but Jesus doesn't appeal to their traditions. He doesn't really even appeal to the law of Moses here. He just asks a simple question. Was the baptism of John of God or of men? Was the ministry of John the Baptist of God or of men? Because John was more than a baptizer. And John was more than a preacher of repentance. We know that he was also a prophet. John was a prophet. And the question back from Jesus forces them to consider John's ministry in those terms. In Luke 176, Zacharias, the, the father of John, prophesies that he will be a prophet of the Most High. 
In, in Luke 7.26, Jesus says He is a prophet. In fact, He's more than a prophet. And He appeals to the Old Testament when He does that. Uh, John is that messenger from God to, to prepare the way. And that's what John had done. He had prepared the way for the Messiah. The, the crowds, the masses had come out to Him. People from Jerusalem had come out to Him at the Jordan River. People from all Judea came out to John at the Jordan River and they heard Him teach and they repented and they were baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Many of the Pharisees, many of the Sadducees had had come out. They confronted John there. And he confronted them on, on what? On trusting in themselves. On trusting in their tradition. On trusting in the fact that I'm a descendant of, of Abraham. That means I'm okay. Some of the Sanhedrin were likely, the, the, you know, the people confronting Jesus here, they're likely some of those who were out there back in Luke 3. And of course, there's also the culmination of John's ministry. And the culmination of John's ministry is, John, is Luke 3, where heaven opens and the Spirit descends on somebody as like a dove. And the voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But he's not talking about John there, right? He's talking about Jesus, the one John is baptizing. John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. So the culmination of John's ministry is him getting out of the way for Jesus. In in, in John 3 verse 30, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the culmination of John's ministry. And all this is, is in Jesus' mind here. The people know... the I mean, John the Baptist's ministry is so significant in Israel. So to repudiate the baptism of Jesus... And the acknowledgement by John that Jesus is the Son of God. For the Sanhedrin to repudiate the truth about Jesus would be to repudiate the ministry of John the Baptist. And his ministry, it is hard to overstate the impact it had on the religious climate of Israel in the days of Jesus. So the question becomes, how would the chief priest and the scribes and the elders answer? Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Well, what did they do? They reasoned among themselves, it says. They reasoned among themselves. And that word for reasoned is significant. Um, In the Greek, this is the only time that word in the Greek appears in the New Testament. It appears four times in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is very influential in, in, in first century Israel. Very influential in the development of the New Testament too. They reasoned among themselves. One of the places we see that word in the Greek in the Old Testament is Isaiah 43, 18. And it says, Do not remember the former things and do not consider or reason the things of old. In other words, here in Luke 20, the Sanhedrin would do well not to judge Jesus by their standards, by their old traditions, by their old paradigms. They would do well to judge Jesus 
by John's prophetic activity. But instead of reasoning about that, what did they do? They reasoned about something else. They reasoned about the consequences of their decision. Instead of answering Jesus in accordance with what they had seen and what they had heard from John and comparing it to the Scriptures, they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, He will say, why did you not believe Him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. They reasoned among themselves, trying to figure out a way to look out for themselves. They went from trying to trap Jesus with their words to trying to figure out a way to escape the trap Jesus had forced them into with His words. The people, by and large, who they were trying to maintain control over, the people considered John a prophet. So to say he wasn't was to risk their power, was to risk their lives, and that is something they were not prepared to do. So instead, verse 7, they answered that they did not know where it came from. And that's the, you know, a few years ago in the political debates, there was uh, debates about uh, abortion and, and, and uh, same-sex marriage and things like that. And I remember one of the politicians saying those questions were above his pay grade. Okay? That's what the Pharisees are in the, that's what the chief priests and scribes are doing here. This question is above our pay grade, Jesus. They claim to not know. So Jesus leaves them with two options. It was either from God or it was from men. And they squirmed to find another way. They squirmed to find a middle way, which was really no way at all. They fear the possibility of being stoned to death, but they fear the repercussions of speaking the truth even more. So they say, we don't know where the baptism of John is from. We don't know. And that's not exactly true. They were unwilling to know. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to have to answer. Their judgment was grounded in a strategy of self-preservation, of what, what is best for their own well-being. They, they were not worried about the truth. They were not concerned about truth here. Instead of being concerned about truth, they were all about what it meant for, for, for them to, to get past Jesus. They, they were looking past Him to reason about the consequences of what a decision about Him meant. What I mean by that, that that's a choice that many people make today. We are willing to go about our own lives, even eagerly participate in religious activities, while never truly confronting the question about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, about how one has to respond to Jesus. The Sanhedrin knew tackling the question of John meant having to deal with the question who do you say that I am? That, that Jesus had asked so many times. They knew that, so they didn't answer. So there's a showdown. Jesus concludes with a sentence. Verse 8. 
And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus' question had silenced his enemies. His statement was a de facto sentence of condemnation. Jesus had taught throughout Israel. He had performed miracles throughout Israel. He healed so many sick people in Israel that disease was probably practically eradicated from the places he was in the first century. He'd raised the dead. In short, Jesus had given more than sufficient proof that He was the Messiah, that He was God in human flesh. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they didn't need any more information than they already had. So Jesus wasn't going to give them any. To quote Jesus, there was, uh, or, um, as I read it put, um, there, there was, there's no need to cast more pearls before swine. Beloved, there comes a time when you shake the dust off your sandals and you move on. Um, you move on from those whose hearts become so hardened to the truth that they don't hear you anymore. And, and sometimes you just have to dust off your sandals and lead those people to God. And that's what these Jewish leaders, that's where they were. These were the gatekeepers of Jewish religion. These were the people who should have known better than anyone what the Messiah would be like. These were the people who, when confronted with the testimony of Jesus and testimony of others about Jesus, refused to accept Him, but willfully, consciously, and actively rejected Him. These are the kinds of people who said... He does these things by the spirit of, the, of Satan, by the spirit of Beelzebub. They've covered their eyes to the light rather than believe the truth. The, the Word made flesh has come to His own and His own have not known Him. They have preferred the darkness to the light. If they'd had the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus might have said, Truly I say to you. But they don't have faith and so He says, Neither will I tell you. There comes a time, beloved, where God turns people away. Where God will harden a hardened heart even more. He did that to Pharaoh. So for, for, for Jesus to refuse to elaborate on what authority He had, it was as if He was judging them because there is a limit to the patience of God. Now I thank God this morning personally that He is as, is as patient as He is. But there is a limit to the patience of God. You, you have to confront the question about who Jesus is, what He has done, and how are you going to respond to that. Half-heartedness when it comes to Jesus turns into hard-heartedness. And those who in the hardness of their hearts continue to reject the light, God will sentence them to the lake of fire to a place where there is no light. God's patience lasted for over 1,600 years with the world before He sent a flood. He said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh and God sent a flood. 
God's patience has gone on a lot longer than 1,600 years at this point. Since then, after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon, about 500 years before Christ, and Nehemiah, they confessed the sins of the past, saying, You bore with them, our ancestors, for many years, and admonished them by your Spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you have... Them in, you have given them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Recently in, in Luke 19, Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and He wept over it. And He said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Today, the patience and the mercy of God is still extended to sinners today. If you're in Christ today, what that means is that you should feel an urgency. And, and you know, Jesus is doing this two days before his crucifixion, and he knows that's coming. So here's his urgency. This should give us a sense of urgency about proclaiming the gospel, beloved. Because the patience of God is going to run out. And it's not because of a shortcoming with God. It's because He's a holy God and eventually sin requires judgment for Him to be holy. And we have been commanded by by our Lord Jesus to tell the world of His salvation and how it's found in no one else but Him. Victory over sin. Victory over death is found only in Jesus. He is our hope. He is our eternal joy. He is our life more abundantly, but He will also judge the living and the dead. And today is the acceptable day of salvation. So we've got to tell people that. It's time to consider the question of Jesus. You must give an answer to Jesus. He will not say on that day, He will not accept the answer if you say, I don't know. Maybe today you need to give an answer about Jesus. Maybe today, like the religious leaders, you're living your life and and even you're doing religious things. You're here amongst the people who've gathered for church. Maybe you're watching on, on a Facebook feed. Maybe you're listening to the audio and doing religious things, but you haven't honestly, earnestly confronted the truth about yourself. And that truth is that you are a sinner. And you deserve eternal damnation. And the truth about Jesus is that He's the Son of God and He took on flesh and He bore the punishment for the sins of everyone who will ever repent and believe in Him so that we don't have to be condemned for eternity. But you must accept the authority of Jesus. You must accept that He is from God, that He is God, that He's done the work of God, and that He wants to save you and bring you to God. He has the authority. To live like you want to is to subvert His authority. To say, I don't know, to the question about Jesus is to ignore His authority. What are you going to do with the authority of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are...
our authority. We thank You, Lord, that You've spoken and we know through Your Word how we come to You, how, how we are supposed to live our lives. I pray, Father, that You would rip out any hesitancy in our hearts. I pray, Father, that You would just destroy our superficiality. Convict us of any ways in which we are hypocrites. Father, we don't want to resemble the Jewish leaders. We want to accept Your Son Jesus for everything He is and nothing He is not. We want to be those who not only profess to believe that He is Lord, but live our lives in submission to that Lordship. And if there be anyone among us this morning, Father, who does not know You, I pray even today You would make them alive and draw them to Yourself. I pray, Father, that You would, through Your Holy Spirit, sanctify those who are in Christ. Sanctify them by Your Spirit so that they might live holy as You are holy. Father, may we be a people committed to Your authority. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.